am Pam Druckerman, and this is Tell Me What You Really Think, where I'm talking with innovators and changemakers about the challenging and chaotic times we're living through. Joining me today is editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. David has been editor of The New Yorker since 1998, oh my God, and a staff writer since 1992. He began his career at The Washington Post and spent four years as a foreign correspondent in Moscow, which led him to author his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Lenin's Tomb, The Last Days of the Soviet Empire. Under his leadership, The New Yorker has become the country's most honored magazine, with count them 53 National Magazine Awards and six Pulitzer Prizes. Wow. David lives in New York with his wife, Esther, and like me, he's had enough courage to have three children, Alex, Noah, and Natasha. Well, first of all, thank you for doing this with me. Total pleasure. It is an absolute pleasure, and I will be honest that I'm a uh, bit—I've had a lot of people on the pod, but you're probably the most um, intimidating guest I've had. Why is that? Because this is something you do, but no, I mean, listen— you know how I feel about you, and you're probably no, one of the most respected, you. you know, not just editors at Condé, but in, in the world around us. And it just so, means I'm old. You're not old, though, I would say. And if you are old, you look quite good. You know, I was interviewing a potential new writer the other day, and he said, you know, you gave a talk at my journalism school 15 years ago. And I pretended to remember, and he said, and you're really well-preserved. Oh, no. And I died a thousand deaths. <laughs> I felt like Betty Davis or something. <laughs> well-preserved. Okay. Jesus, like a sausage. <laughs> okay. And you are looking well-preserved, so okay, congratulations on that. <laughs> we'll have you on our um, Ageless podcast. Dermatology today. No Botox, nothing yet. No? This is all natural. No, no. Right, it's impressive. Um, well, it's a good segue because um, obviously we have a lot to unpack today, but um, I've been meaning to ask you this because a lot of the conversations you and I have are very much New Yorkery all the time. Mm-hmm. We, we work together in 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 a parallel path kind of way. What is life outside of the New Yorker like for you? Like, what do you actually do when you're not at work? I don't think I actually know the answer to that. Does a life outside of the New Yorker and work? I I don't know. That's what they say. Please, dear God, tell me. At least once a month, maybe? You know, Pam, if I'm being honest, and at a certain point in your life, it's not worth being anything else, I have a complicated family life. Mm -hmm. And I have three grown kids, but the third is severely, severely autistic and at home. And so the capacity to do what somebody at my stage of life would normally do, Mm -hmm. like do things like travel or take vacations or do things that aren't work, is severely circumscribed. You know, but I'm so used to this, I don't know what, I don't feel sorry for myself one bit. This is just what is. And as a result, I work all the time. And the job that I have has grown different and more demanding than it was when I began it, which is two and a half million years ago. And I see friends and and the things that I do in addition to work <laughs> that sound like work, like write. Mm-hmm. I write to not be editing and dealing with people. It's 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 a release as opposed to anything else. So that's that's a very, very broad shape of it. And you know, so it's not like I'm spending, you know, four weeks in an Italian hill town. <laughs> That's just the path that came to me. I guess my question is then, so you spend a lot of your time working. Work is the release for you? It's the it's the way that you kind of... I don't know the difference. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm being honest with you, and I'm not com- the least bit complaining. I don't know the difference. Do, do I relax? Of course I do. But I'm, what am I doing? I'm reading and reading and reading, and, or I'm watching a movie that may give me an idea. Mm-hmm. I take a shower, and I have an idea besides, you know, washing my hair or whatever it is I'm doing. I, it, I don't find that I'm ever quite enough away from work to call it not work. So when people talk about the work-life balance, that just doesn't exist for you because it's all one well, it's in a, a way? a really good question because on the one hand, I need to be really aware of that subject and never more so than now. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I can't just say, hey, just do as I do. or That that's, would be, you know, some form of terrible leadership and also uh, sadism of some form. <laughs> people have different lives and different emphases in their lives and the rest. And it's also, you know, I, I hardly need to tell you in the last two and a half years, trying to lead, create in an atmosphere of disassociation, Zoom, fear, anxiety, politics, and more, is not easy. Mm-hmm. And certainly not unique to me or to you. It's just a common condition. And... I distinctly remember in the midst of the pandemic being on Zoom calls where I felt like I'm trying to jolly up or inspire or motivate these 15 people and they're not ha- and they're not buying it. Right. Because they're adults and they know what's what. And uh, this other person at the end of the line tries he might is not going to solve this problem. This is a, it's, it's just been a very rough extended time in so many ways. You know, look at my life as a reporter mm-hmm. and as a citizen. I, it is totally and utterly shaped by a moment of high optimism between 1988 and 1990s, the early 90s. I lived in Moscow for four years. I saw an entire empire crumble and, and potentially democratize. And now... Russia has invaded Ukraine and, 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 and. You know, country after country that I either covered or paid a lot of attention to, which seemed to be on an upward path, including the one I sit in and am a citizen of, mm-hmm. has gone in an entirely t- different direction. So that, that also is the drama, not of my life, but of our lives. But I think what's so interesting, you know, my dad used to say, you know, if you love what you do, it never feels like work, Right. And I think it's interesting, too, because I've come to appreciate the fact that I actually do love what I do. Mm-hmm. And I think you love what you do. I do. But, I don't want to put but not every in. hour. Right. And not every day. Right? No. But, like, in the broader view, you love what you do. I love it when I'm doing what I view as the essence of it and what I can put in a positive direction. What, what's difficult is having to deal with things that you can't necessarily solve. Mm-hmm or make better in a given moment. That's hard. And I think, I also think, and I think this is very common, managing people is an incredibly complicated piece of business. This what? This is an incredibly no. complicated piece of business. And, but if you're not up for it. Yeah. And I, I guess I learned where that's concerned that there were, and I looked at other editors, either of my generation or earlier, that there were two ways to lead. Mm-hmm. Either through fear or through love. And I've seen both. Mm-hmm. Dramatically saw it at the New York Times, both, for example, without naming names. No, go ahead. At, it's, tell it, me what you really think, David. Don't I, forget. I will. There was an editor at okay. a certain time who took over and had ambitious plans for the New York Times, but was 
led through fear, whether he knew it or not. And the results in the short term were magnificent. Pulitzer Prize after Pulitzer Prize and so on and so forth. But it didn't last very long. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen this with politicians too, who when their moment comes and they've led through fear, they don't have any allies in their moment of crisis. That's a great point. And when you lead through fear, it's the people on the other end that are feeling the anxiety and exhaustion. But it never lasts for very long. If you lead through love, which seems very self-admiring to describe it that way, but you know what I mean. It's exhausting Mm -hmm. and sometimes even depleting, but there is the possibility of it lasting. But do you think you can, and I'm going to be presumptuous to assume that you would describe yourself as someone who probably leans towards leading through love. Not even lean toward. I would be horrified. I'm not stupid. I know that if a 22-year-old first-timer comes, they're nervous if I'm dragging them into my office and interviewing them for a job. I'm not foolish. And it's not because it's me, the human being. Mm -hmm. It's just the person in that seat is innately going to be... Well, and it's you a little bit. You're David Remnick. Trust me when I tell you I don't know what that means. But I'll take it on board. Okay. But... Uh, you know, it, things have changed. I, I grew up in a newsroom led by Ben Bradley. Mm-hmm. Tell you our know, listeners who Ben Bradley is, well, by the way. Well, that's the good point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> ben Bradley was I have the, some 22-year-olds yeah, listening, so they fair, won't. That is fair enough. Ben Bradley was the editor of the Washington Post. He really created the, moder- the modern Washington Post. The Washington Post was not a very good newspaper before he and Catherine Graham, the owner, got a hold of it. And through their participation in the Pentagon Papers, case, I'll spare you a long explanation about that, and Watergate in particular, Bradley became the swashbuckling, handsome, magnetic, charismatic editor of the second half of the 20th century. That's who Ben Bradley was. And then my the only other editor I ever had was Tina Brown, who was a similar model in her own way, mm-hmm. a force of personality. Certainly. I don't do it that way because I don't have the equipment to do that. So you'd have to ask others about that. And by the way, I was not around for the Tina Brown days. I've been a New Yorker reader Mm -hmm. only since you've been Mm -hmm. the editor. And so my question to you is, if you look at the New Yorker with a broader view and and appreciating that it's had an existence before you, do you feel like today it's an extension of you? Like, Mm -hmm. And where do you kind of see you as one versus not, I guess. I, I think magazine editors, if we're still allowed to call ourselves that, as opposed to brand managers or some fakakta thing like that. Creators. There's all kinds of content. Content, I don't know, extruders. That there's the thing that you're coming to that has, cliche alert, a DNA that was created initially. So Harold Ross in 1925 comes along and he creates this thing called the New Yorker in opposition to things that he thought were boring like the New York Times of the 20s, like the loose magazines, Time, Fortune, and the like. He wanted to create a thing that had a kind of ect New York spirit, a sense of humor. And as time went on, it also added more serious dimensions, particularly in its journalism and in its fiction. Its DNA expanded, if if, if that metaphor is possible. Mm -hmm. So by the time you get to the end of the Second World War and into the 50s, Harold Ross and his successor, William Sean, had created this great thing in American culture and in American journalism, had an identity. It is absolutely true that their successors, Bob Gottlieb and then Tina Brown, certainly torqued it one way or another, and you long discussion about how they did, 
and some of it depends on how long they stuck around to do so. And I've been at it since 1998. It's quite a long time. But who's counting? So is it an extension of me? Well, in some sense, yes, I've hired a lot of people. I hired this one and not that one and this writer and not that writer. So sure, it's an infinitely more diverse thing that could not have been whiter, (laughs) despite Tina's presence, very, very male Mm -hmm. uh, and was getting better. But, you know, I remember getting notes from Jill Abramson at the time saying, I can't believe your table of contents this week is all guys. Wow. And she was, of course, right. Yeah. And the only way to change that is to pay attention and do better and change and change and week by week and month by month. So, yes, it's an extension of a lot of things, but I'd be lying if if I wasn't part of that. And do you feel like, I think what a lot of people want to understand about you in particular, and we're going to talk about The New Yorker a little bit more, but you kind of referenced your background. I mean, you spent a considerable amount of time at the Washington Post. You have an unbelievable resume. Is this what you wanted to do when you grew up? Like, where? how did this even start for you? Well, I grew up in a very conservative, in a sense, Jewish household in the suburbs of New... A very, a very dull suburb of New Jersey that I wanted to get out of. What is that suburb? Hills, ne- Hillsdale, New Jersey. And... Um, the most famous graduate of my high school was a, a, a mass murderer. I'm, I'm not kidding. Oh, amazing. I think I think 12 victims. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I looked it up in Wikipedia. And there's some economist of, of note, too. So I wanted out. You know, I, 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 my f- and both of my parents were ill sequentially. And it was, it was complicated and, and ordinary at the same time. It was conservative in the sense that my career options were be a doctor or be a lawyer. I wanted to be a writer. My parents didn't know any writers. Mm -hmm. We didn't know anybody like that. Why would we? And why did you want to be a writer? Because I was a reader, and I just thought this was the most romantic thing you could possibly do. You know, everything began for me culturally. Everything. Every reference, every focus point began by listening to Bob Dylan and when I was a very small kid. And everything that he said to basically go listen to in interviews or song references, I would listen to. Everything. If he would mention Baudelaire in an interview, I would, the hell is Baudelaire? And I'd go buy it for 10 cents at a church basement and read it. <laughs> the world just opened up in a way that the world would open up to somebody differently by listening to a generation later to, I don't know, Nirvana or, or whomever. Beyonce. Beyonce. Or, or, or. Something has to open the, the door for you. Yeah. And that's what did. But I also, because I had these parents who were falling apart, I knew I had to make a living. I couldn't just go to a college and then shut the door and pronounce myself a novelist. Not only would I have to support myself, I knew I would have to support my parents in some way. So the next best thing was journalist. That's a job as opposed to a, a calling. It was a lucky time. I got a job right away at, out of college at the Washington Post. And where'd you go to college? I went to a, a place in Princeton, New Jersey. Oh, a place <laughs> yeah, in Princeton, New Jersey. That place. Mm-hmm, yeah. Which could not have been a more different New Jersey than the one I grew up in. I loved everything about it academic and hated everything social. I just, this is not on, um, this is zero on theme or topic, but I don't understand New Jersey at all. So at some point we have to really break that down because I'm from L.A. New Jersey is so confusing to me. The Princeton, Skillman, that whole situation. Princeton is this, they used to call it the northernmost point of the Confederacy. That's how conservative Princeton was back in the day, before me. 
and now it's quite different, but it's still very special. Mm-hmm. We, 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 we have to, there's a whole Non- other offline conversation we need to have about that. But yeah. one point I'll have to ask you what you really think about New Jersey, because I just, I don't know, I struggle with that state. I want to talk to you about— I, I would speak up for it. Would you? Yes. Wow. But then ask me if I live there. Do you live there? <laughs> no, <laughs> Of course I don't. you don't. Exactly. It's very easy to speak up for something when you've left. Um, That's fair. Listen, the New Yorker is one of our most prized possessions. But you definitely don't give yourself enough credit. And I'm, I'm someone that has watched you. But it's not going to change in the next half hour. Well, maybe not. But what I'm going to do instead is, is borrow your brain. Uh, and I want to ask you some questions. Because sure. I do know that at the end of the day, we're, we're living in a time when, and you started to reference it at the beginning of the pod, which is um, that first and foremost, it's a very difficult time. Let's just say that. And uh, we've lived through the pandemic or we're living through the pandemic And it just seems like every day or every month or every quarter, there's like a new version of something that feels quite different. It's very, it's very volatile. We're not even like out of COVID and then the war in Ukraine started and we haven't even really figured out what what next steps look like here in the U.S. while China has had all of their challenges. And all of this is having challenges on our democracy for sure. There's also lantern flies, which I'm like, that's a whole other, like, what is happening? What is going on? You can always say in any time, and there's also bugs. Right. But <laughs> I think there's a lot of curiosity about your opinion. Yeah. You in particular, your current, your opinion about the current state of democracy. And I know you've written about this, and I know you've talked about this, but I would be really interested to know as we come towards another kind of important moment in American democracy, one is... What is your opinion as to, is it the chicken or the egg in terms of why American democracy democracy feels so, I don't know, I can't, I'm not allowed to swear, but I want us to say like fucked up right now. It's just so challenging. I think so, that's the best way to put it. it. It is, but it's not unique to us. If you look around the world, again, I, I lived in Moscow from 1988 to the end of 1991. In that period and its aftermath, Eastern and Central Europe, as well as all the former Soviet republics, were in some sense liberated. Now, it was never a a slam dunk that, you know, Kazakhstan or Tajikistan or, you know, Armenia would become Jeffersonian democracies, but the sense of overall optimism was directional in in, in that way. Over and over again, those, those hopes and plans and ambitions were thwarted or undermined or you know, self-ruining in in some way or another. So that a world that really did seem to be looking potentially moving in one direction, inspiring Francis Fukuyama to write a book called The End of History, reversed itself. So if you're asking in some way, is this all Donald Trump's fault? The answer is no, although he is a hideous character in the overall drama. And we have choices to make at the ballot box and and elsewhere that, that matter, that matter immensely. Do I think we're doomed to terrible illiberalism in the United States or elsewhere? No, I don't. I don't think we're ever doomed to anything. I think we, as human beings, have volition and the capacity to change things. And I'm one human being, and I have a very privileged role to play as a journalist in what I publish or what I write or what I push people to do. Mm -hmm. But there are limitations. I'm painfully aware that The New Yorker is often or too often or maybe even some days completely talking to its its readers who already agree with it in the main. I, well, that That's tough. 
And you, you also— How to reach across is, is a harder thing. Well, and that's actually a very good point. I thought it was really interesting. You wrote in The New Yorker earlier this year that the U.S. was recently listed as a democracy that was backsliding. Mm-hmm. And you also stated that—this really spoke to me—that we are a country capable of electing Barack Obama, and eight years later, a country— obviously capable of electing Donald Trump. In fact, states, there are particular states that voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. And you have to ask yourself why. You can't just kind of throw up your hands. But do you think that, to your earlier point, though, that we're speaking to people who already believe, and to your point, that there's a divide of states? Like, first of all, I don't think we've always been this divided, number one. But do you think that the New Yorker plays a role in that contiguous inability to reach across? Is it impossible is, does it feel almost like impossible to reach across our, our I, I think it's I, I think it's first of all you shouldn't dismiss the value of sometimes preaching to the choir the choir needs ministering too <laughs> and I think it's very important to provide the facts and narratives and accurate uh, portraits of the country to whomever will is in a position to receive it. What's changed so dramatically, so dramatically, is that the picture of the press, the picture of information, is so radically different from not when I was just a child, but when I was just beginning in the business and even midway through my career, wherever that means. In other words, I've seen it with members of my extended family, that their politics can change like that because they've gone down a particular social media mm-hmm. rabbit hole. I've seen it too. I've seen this, I think we all have, that you thought somebody was oh, maybe a moderate Democrat, for example, but they got pissed off about their kids, for example, staying home from school during the pandemic, and they start to go down anger rabbit holes. And for whatever reason of the attractiveness, the qualities, the luring qualities of Facebook or particular voices on social media, you blink and something has happened to that person in, in a potentially transformational way. It is, that is new on the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. That's really different. Well, and, and I don't know that the New Yorker as such or the New York Times or the Washington Post really knows with any confidence what to do about it. There's constant conversations about it. There's earnest committees assembled. Mm-hmm. There are, at the New York Times and the Post, I know, for example, teams that are called the democracy team. And it's all in earnest. It's all well-meaning. And we talk about this at the New Yorker all the time, what kind of pieces we're going to do to do our, as it were, do our part. But it is, I wouldn't say necessarily it's a losing battle, but it's an incredibly complicated one. Well, it's incredibly complicated because it's not going away. No, but it changes. I don't think anything is permanent. Just as suddenly things got awful, it's not necessarily a permanent state of being. I refuse to accept that. But the lantern flies are here now. Uh, There are lantern flies, but nobody was talking about the environment five years ago. They should have been the way they are now. The conversation on race, has it, has it transformed everybody's life and just gotten rid of systemic racism? No, but you cannot tell me that conversations and important aspects of society can't change. Otherwise, why bother living? But let's just go back to the the point that you're making about this complex time. I never thought I would see this happen where women have lost 
their right to get an abortion in the United States of America. Yes, everyone reminds me, well, in well, New but, York, you could still get an abortion. why wouldn't you have thought this was possible? I mean, it feel, like, again, there's the backslide, right? So is that, is that indicative in your mind? Of, that, that would be saying that, you know, as a Jew, I never would have thought that anti-Semitism would rear its ugly head yet again. Well, let me rephrase the question. We were making progress. Yeah. Let's put it that way. I'm yeah. a woman, yeah. right? Yeah. I don't need to say my age, but I'm well-preserved as well. But let's just say I was born in 1975. I came into this world with a lot of rights that my mom did not have, and my grandmother certainly did not have. And so I didn't have to fight really hard to have some of the rights that I have. Nor, you know, Not that I wasn't appreciative or that I'm not appreciative. And I'm also a queer woman, so I— got to experience in this moment in time in 2015, my marriage being federally recognized. Now that's in question. Now you're question. worried about that too. Of course I am. You're damn right. So, but to say that why wouldn't I be surprised when there's been progress, and I guess maybe you're a better person to to ask in terms of like, you know, the history of democracy, you know, this one step forward and five steps back. Like, should we expect that's how it's supposed to be and that's what it is and that, you know, ultimately we have to just accept that, this is who people are, and this is what the American— In short? Yeah. Yes. Yes. The idea that somehow— You're so calm about the, it when you the, say The that. idea that somehow life on Earth is an inexorable matter of, of uh, unchanging progress. No. No. It's, it's, if, we're, if we're fortunate— Mm-hmm. We learn from our horrific experiences historically, which we have a habit of not doing, and change is made all— Look, no other than Ruth Bader Ginsburg mm-hmm. was very clear that the idea of solving, as it were, the abortion question through the courts rather than the legislatures was not the best way to go. But for all kinds of historical reasons, and Harry Blackman and certain moment in time— what happened happened in the Supreme Court. But it's not as if suddenly in the minds of every human being in the United States, that political question was then resolved to everybody's satisfaction. The so-called pro-life movement persisted and it had a political opportunity and it had this freak come into office named Donald Trump who didn't give a damn, by the way, about abortion as an issue before he became a politician, but saw advantage in it for his own purposes. And a Supreme Court, sadly, Ruth Bader Ginsburg stayed too long. We, we know the story. And suddenly the Supreme Court's composition became, yes, completely out of step with the nation, but it's not a, it's, it's not a legislature. It's appointed and it is what it is. And it absolutely predictably, predictably, the day Donald Trump was elected, it became obvious that if certain people retired and died at times that were mm-hmm. predictable, that he would appoint people that would take this right away. Do you think she knows she stayed too long? It's a tragedy. Do you think she knew she stayed she too long? She was gambling. I, I bow to no one in my, in my admiration for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but she took a gamble that was not a smart gamble in retrospect, and she paid for it, and we've paid for it, and, and and it's a terrible and sad irony of history that this great crusader for women's rights mm-hmm. made a poor decision. Does that now guarantee that abortion rights will forever now be 
out of reach for a huge number of, of, of women in, in the uh, people in the United States? No, but it's going to be a fight and a battle in politics. That's what politics is. And what do you think, your personal opinion, you don't have a crystal ball, but you know a lot of people. Yeah, but, you know. Whatever. So we know what's going on with LGBTQ plus rights. We know it's going to be, you know, Schumer said they're going to bring it to the floor. What do you think is going to happen? I don't know. I, 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 I say this to be, and I say this not to be elusive or obnoxious or anything like that. The one part of journalism that's not, that I have no special insight into is prediction. Well, I have an opinion I, though, I, right? You know, I can hope for the best and then see the facts clearly. Is there precedent? I mean, for horrible things happening in legislatures? <laughs> Lantern flies. No, let, is there let, precedent let for a moment like this? Of reversing things, of things going backwards. Yeah, like That's if, all we've seen in the last six years. So, yes, of course. Vigilance. <laughs> Vigilance. And, you know, this is, I, I, it shouldn't be a revelation to us anytime it happens, meaning when things go backwards, because how many examples do we need? This, this just, just didn't happen for the first time in the, in the years of Trump. Yeah. And it won't be the last. This is Tell Me What You Really Think with David Remnick. And let me ask you, and I'm sure you think about this, or in fact, I know you think about this every day, but how much do you think the news media today mm. plays into this? So this, and when I say this, this great divide this American democracy backslide, as you called it. It's interesting, as you talked about, we all have the family member who went down a social media rabbit hole in which the family members that I have distinctly watch a very specific channel who are correct. And then the family members that are on the other side distinctly watch, you know, one of two channels. And it's so obvious, right, where, and it's hard to, again, no one even knows, everyone thinks they're right, and, and, and I don't know who, who is, quite frankly. Yeah. How much do you think the, the news media has to, to do with what's actually happened? Maybe this seems like an obvious question. And because of that, like, where do we go from here? Mm. Well, the, the, the idea of what the news media is has changed radically. So when I was growing up, not to elaborate a cliche, but the news media meant three television networks, a scatter of newspapers, local and national, something called radio. I've heard of that. And, and, that, and that, was, that was what it was. And now it is infinitely more complex. It's infinite. You know, we work at something that in many ways is, is changing and evolving, but it's also old-fashioned too. Why would you say it's old-fashioned? Because what I do is, a lot of it is what we did 50 years ago. We send reporters out into the world and they gather information and through a combination of intelligence, reporting, point of view, intense fact-checking, and editing, produce what we hope is a, an effective, God forbid, even authoritative, and often lengthy piece of writing about a particular subject. Is it old-fashioned, though, David, to actually old, care about reporting the truth? No, of course. I don't mean old-fashioned to be dismissive of it, but it's, it's very expensive. Yeah. There's a lot of resources that go into that. But it, it doesn't win the day. Um, necessarily with the majority of the country. All I'm, at, I'm begging you to consider is that things change. The Democratic Party's changed, right? The Democratic Party is now the party of people who have educations. This is the biggest discussion out there in politics. 
as opposed to the Republican Party, which it's in its voters, is largely people that have less of an education than Democrats. I don't say this is a matter of insult or judgment. It's just what is. Democratic Party, when Bobby Kennedy was running for president in 1968, was a party of working class people, black and white and Hispanic, and educated people, Republicans, you remember the term country club Republicans, yeah. the business class, yeah. et cetera. That's different now. But do you think the news— And that's dangerous, and that is much a much more divisive, complicated picture. And we have a political system that is not majoritarian. We have a, a Supreme Court that clearly is not created out of some majoritarian— politics. We have an, the worst thing. We have an electoral college that is an insane creation for reasons of 18th century reasons is the shape it is. We have a Senate in which 12 people live in one state and have two senators and 50 million people live in another state and have two senators. And you know all the reasons for this, but what it's creating is not a, not a majoritarian politics. We're, we're not alone. In Britain, they have a parliamentary system. They have a new prime minister, Liz Truss, who was basically elected by 150,000 elderly Tories. These systems are, at best, highly, highly imperfect, and they have consequences. Let me, let me just say this. This is—and I'm not, I'm not even going to speak as, like, a Condé Nast person for a minute. I'm just yeah. going to speak as Pam. When I was growing up, there was—I'm going to make a broader point, and then I want to say something else. There was the Inquirer, okay? The Philadelphia Inquirer or the National Inquirer? The National Inquirer. Okay, and everyone knew it was bullshit. Yeah. But it was, like, entertaining, so people like to read it, right? And everything else, there seemed to be—and again, I'm really simplifying this, and I know this is from the views of a younger person at the time— that, like, report, real reporting—and mm -hmm. I started my career as an editor. I don't know if you know this, mm -hmm. by the way, but I, I did. And real fact-checking was, like— Then you got honest work. Right? But it was, like—it was kind of, like, what was expected, or at least real reporting. Real reporting. Even if you were, even if you were like you know a health and beauty editor, it was like real reporting. You were, you were, you were. Yeah, but there was. You know, there's always been tabloids. There's always sure. been a gutter press. For there's sure. always been a yellow press. But the yeah. gutter press, in my mind, yeah. maybe in my narrow, ignorant mind at that time, didn't exist on CNN or didn't exist on Fox News or these major. Yeah. Right. And okay, but maybe it did. And so I guess it seems to be, or it seems to feel. And by the way, I was so I was complaining recently to a colleague of mine, a friend of mine in China, about like what's going on. I'm like, you don't know if you put it on this channel. You're gonna hear this. She started laughing. She's like, of course this she is laughed. So funny to me. She's like, I don't even like we've like it's it's funny that you would ever believe anything that you would like listen to on the news. Like we've never look the very best newspaper in the history of the world, probably, is the modern New York Times. There That's a, a whole, bold statement. It's easy. On the other hand, there are whole books written about how the New York Times blew the story on, among other things, small things like the Holocaust, Stalin's artificial famine in Ukraine. They won a Pulitzer Prize by a reporter named Walter Durante in the same year that he deliberately ignored mm -hmm. a famine throughout Ukraine that killed millions of people. The overall performance of the press in the run-up to the Iraq War was nothing to be proud of. And this is the best press. Go see a movie like The Sweet Smell of Success about, you know, the career of Walter Winchell, the most powerful columnist of his time. Even the very best press can get things wrong. Reality is a very hard thing to um, report on accurately and bring home. And, and, and now it's infinitely more complicated, even as the New York Times has blossomed 
because but, it's become a kind of monopoly. But getting something wrong, by the way, again, I'm speaking to the person who, you know, leads the New Yorker, which has been known for speaking truth to power and is also known for its gold standard in journalistic integrity and fact-checking under your leadership. Hold on, hold yeah. on. I, I have to say this because this is just— the, 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 there's The reason why I'm asking you this question, 53 National Magazine Awards, six Pulitzers. Like, yeah, I'm sure that the best journalists— get things wrong, yeah. and I think the best journalists miss a story, and all that is real. Mm -hmm. But, like, the blatant fake news, blatant, it seems like some people think this this is not going to be a lasting effect of, you know, Trump's, the world he created around us. But this is like, it feels like overt. And it, it is overt. It is overt. So it's changed. You know what I'm saying? Like, that no, is not— it's not Rupert Murdoch— you may be blunt about it. Rupert Murdoch is far more interested in personal power and personal fortune than the truth. And when they come into conflict, personal power and personal fortune is always going to win. But Rupert Murdoch is not a new animal under the sun. There have been press barons like that in the United States and everywhere around the world for a very long time. What's actually more anomalous mm -hmm. is the other thing. The New Yorker, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and its modern economy for all its flaws. That's more anomalous in history. And I had the opportunity to, and this was a, an extraordinary experience. Of course, I'll never forget, and it will never stop influencing me. I lived in the Soviet Union. When I got there, there was a kind of monolithic Communist Party press, whether it was the newspapers Pravda and Izviestia and the state television and all the radio. It was highly controlled, highly censored. And along comes a politics led by Mikhail Gorbachev, who decided this country is going to live in isolation and a kind of corrosive poverty forever and lose its superpower status if it doesn't break out of this self-imposed shell of censorship. And suddenly you started seeing, because the state allowed it now, newspapers and even television and radio opening up and opening and opening up. It changed everything. And now we've seen the opposite happen. Exactly. In Russia and elsewhere. It's certainly not unique to Russia. China looked at Russia and thought, you know what? Uh, we're not going to go that route. Thank you very much. We'll do the economic liberalization thing. We're going to bring tens of millions of people out of extreme poverty, which they have. Mm -hmm. But press liberalization, liberalization of academia, literature, movies, the arts, forget it. Because that way lies madness, and we lose our control, we lose our power, we lose our personal fortunes. And Rupert Murdoch is much more kin to Xi Jinping than he is to Barack Obama in that spirit. Never a truer statement. David, you must be proud. I know, actually, I know the answer to this one. I know you're proud of the work that The New Yorker has done. I am. And it really has had a tremendous amount of influence in the way people think. How do you decide, like, what to cover in particular? How do, how do you make those decisions? And then what are the standards you hold yourself and your staff to in particular, given the, the, the atmosphere that we just talked about? Right. Well, The New Yorker is not only about news and politics and some of my grave matters. By the way, some of my favorite restaurant recommendations have come from The New Yorker. This week, you know what restaurant we're reviewing? I forget the name of it. Whatever that restaurant, it's apparently terrible, that— Eric Adams, mayor of New York, goes to every night and gets the $60 Branzino. It's oh, on 52nd Street. A $60 Branzino. Oh, so it was, okay. 
So the there's, mayor there's a York? terrific piece both in Politico and the New York Times about how Eric Adams every night practically goes to the same bad restaurant on 52nd Street called whatever, clearly is not paying his bills. It's run by two brothers who have been indicted more times than Adam rather than having a review of yet another wonderful new Italian da, 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 in Brooklyn, blah, 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 we reviewed that. So in other words, I want it to be— Is the Branzino good in this review or no, not good? Okay, no bueno. No, okay. It tastes, I, th- I think it tastes roughly like a baseball. Oh, no. Okay. So I want the magazine to also be a place where you can go that it's funny, mm-hmm. that it's surprising. I am very aware that all of our readers, all of them, read something else as their basic news source. Times, the Post, the Journal, the this, the that, whatever. And that they're coming to The New Yorker for something else. And really, what we're in the business of things that are not necessarily the expectable thing that we yeah. Queen dies. Yes, there'll be something about the queen. There's an election. Of course, there'll be something about that. You know, Ron DeSantis comes down the pike and looks very likely to be quite possibly the next president of the United States. We're certainly going to profile him as Dexter Filkins did. But I, on a given week, we should also surprise the hell out of you. And there should be the, – the co- coverage of culture should be at a depth mm-hmm. that is superb. So we ask a lot of ourselves. And also we ask something of the reader. I'm not unaware that sometimes our pieces are not short. And I, it is – when somebody will come up to me and as if it's the first time I've ever heard it. And I'll say, you know, I get The New Yorker. And, of course, I love The New Yorker. But, you know, they pile up, and I don't necessarily get to da-da-da-da. And they say this like, I'm going to be so insulted and just weep into my pillow for the next six weeks, and and I've never heard it before in my life. I know. Let me just say here. I I get it. But what what I'm hoping is that you do find in a given issue or on the site on a given day something you go, oh, I hadn't thought about that, and I'm going to read this now. I'm going to read it later. And it might even change me a little bit. And with that, because by the way, that makes me feel a lot better. We're not here to make you miserable. But it's true that there are weeks that, you know, first of all, I always read the reviews. I'm always, the, the culture section is like a big, big part of how I like to live my life. But do you feel like you are catering to the audience you already have or the audience that you would like to have? Or both? Or, like, can you even answer that? No. Because you I, don't I, know? Or? You, this is why I think there have been a lot of big personalities as, as magazine editors, both in the past and now. You know, I, I work with one. Anna Wintour is, is not only a fantastic editor, but she's also, she's Anna Wintour. In other words, she inhabits a space in the, in the world that I wouldn't know how to do. You're very different people. We are, but we we get along tremendously well, and I and you know I learn from her. I watch. I can't do what she does, but I learn a lot. And she's not the only one. Ben Bradley, Tina Brown in her way, Robert Silvers, Barbara Epstein, et cetera, et cetera. But finally, I don't believe, from certainly not for my purposes, in the imperial editor model that. So much of what goes into the New Yorker is the idea that it's all an extension of me and like I'm one of those Hindu goddesses with 47 arms and is doing everything. No. What's happening is that the people in the room or the extended room, meaning the, the above all the writers, artists, audio makers, filmmakers, and everything else we do, 
cartoonists. That's what The New Yorker is. Mm-hmm. It's not just David Remnick making his selections. No. That's not unimportant. I'd, I'd be an idiot to, to, to deny that. But there's a, a communal aspect to it. And that the editors that I work with are of enormous intelligence. And we fight and we argue and I hope decently and civilly. And the result of those conversations and arguments and efforts is what The New Yorker is. And so, therefore, it's not just me, 63-year-old guy from New Jersey. It's also a lot of other people who are younger, different backgrounds, and that mushed together influences, above all, what The New Yorker is. I don't think it's singular. Well, I don't think it is either. But I also wonder sometimes, like, if The New Yorker even has the capacity to reach an audience that, let me put it this way, the New Yorker has not, not a David Remnick point of view, but a New Yorker point of view. And I, the question I asked about it being an extension of you is more or less, it would be hard to lead something in which you felt like there was no chemistry between your own beliefs and maybe the beliefs of what you're putting out into the world. And knowing you the way that I when do. I he, when I hear, though, Pam, that so-and-so is a, not a fascist, but a kind of, you know, right of center, fiscal conservative, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. politics. And then they say, I read The New Yorker and I enjoy it. I don't always agree with it. I'm very pleased by that. Mm-hmm. And the same thing from, you know, flanking, outflanking me from the left. I, I, why, would I, why would I not? I find it extremely boring okay. to only be with the, your, you know, like-minded souls. All right. I'm going to ask you, I've just asked you some important questions. Mm-hmm. And you're going to... Just kind of answer them, but not like, don't take too long. Got it. So we're approaching the halfway mark of the Biden administration. Are you happy with his performance? You know the old expression, three cheers for something? Two cheers for Biden. Hmm. Biden was elected to not have Donald Trump. Mission accomplished. Biden was elected to, you know, have an honest, powerful answer to a pandemic. We're getting there. I would say the same thing a lot about politics. But when you have a Senate that's 50-50 and you have the politics that we live in and the persistence of Donald Trump, well, you can't do everything. What does your voter card say? Democrat. I knew it. I mean, well, what did you think? I don't know. It was, you know, it's like New Jersey. I, I You know, I, I have other, you know, predecessors like Len Downey at the Post. He wouldn't vote. I, I, I'm a citizen too. Yeah. Could you vote Republican? Have you? I have once in, like, municipal elections, once or twice. Okay. Who's running in 24? Well, who must prove than otherwise, I think Donald Trump is one of them. Ron DeSantis. And I think Biden. And who do you think, between DeSantis or Trump, gets the nod? Trump seems to be immune from, so far, from the normal disqualifying factors. I was going to ask you what you're reading and what you're watching, but, like, it doesn't sound like you have a lot of time. I watch a lot. Okay, what is and your— I read a lot. Okay, what's your favorite—what sh- is the, your favorite thing to watch right now? So, right now, I'm watching Industry. Really? Yeah. You know that show? On yeah. It? It's HBO. It's a show set in Britain. Our hero is uh-huh. a young black American woman who's probably—she's so young, but she maybe she's 27— and she's in this kind of British milieu in the city, in the financial world. It's, it's kind of good. I, my favorite show, if I can make a recommendation that maybe not everybody has seen, and you'll say, oh, it's French, it's better in New York, blah, 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 but, you know, too bad. This is show— um, The L Word? I love that show. I kind of like that. Isn't it good? <laughs> yes. 
Uh, yeah. What's the what's the French one about the agent? I like her. Yep. Call my agent. Yep. Call my agent. Seen it. I watch all those Nordic police shows and anything with spies, and the dumber the better. So if they show you the Eiffel Tower uh-huh. and they show you the Chiron under it saying Paris, I'm happy. If you're not reading The New Yorker, what are you reading? Books. Books. You're, you're, books. you're all the time. Yeah, all How many the books time. do you read a year? I have no idea. If you had to guess. I have no idea. And they range from, you know, I'll read, uh, you know, a, I read not long ago Daniel Deronda, George Eliot novel, but then I'll read, uh, you know, a McGray thriller and I'll read, a, you know, a piece of political reporting. It's just thing, thing, thing. And if you weren't doing what you're doing mm-hmm. and you were working somewhere else— it's very simple. Where? I'd be a writer. I'd be writing. For? <laughs> Probably The New Yorker. <laughs> All right. I'm going to ask you some really quick questions. Go. We're at the end. Go. It's called Quick Fire. So you're going to tell me what you really think. Go. Nets or Knicks? Knicks. This year or in general? No, the Knicks stink, but you ask me who I— Okay, always you on. Know, it's, what can I say? What keeps you up at night? I, I worry about my kids. What gets you out of the bed in the morning? I— I grew up with sick parents. The idea that I'm healthy and alive and there's a day in front of me, I I can't wait to get going. What's the most gratifying compliment you've ever received? I'd rather keep that to myself. What's the most pointed or valid criticism? Where do I begin? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Where do I begin? I've been wrong about certain political issues. If I look back and I haven't treated somebody that I work with optimally, I feel miserable. Mm -hmm. I would certainly say that about, you know, my kids, Mm -hmm. you know, but none of us are perfect. Beer, wine, or scotch? Beer. Beer. And scotch, too. Mm. In fact, you gave me a very good bottle of of same. Wine, I just, if it's somewhere in between Manischewitz and something fantastic, it's just fine with me. Do you wordle? Have you gotten on that craze? Do you care about that stuff? The stupidest business decision I made. Can I confess this to you? Please. Last year, I saw my wife playing wordle like crazy, and I thought, I should tell Roger Lynch to buy this thing. And I kind of didn't get around to it. And as I was thinking of it, the Times bought it, and I think for very little. And I feel terrible about that. And I will not repeat that mistake. (laughs) Never again. Never again. David Remnick, this was such a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for, I don't know, entertaining me entertaining you. Anytime. Talk to you later. Tell Me What You Really Think is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. I'm Pam Druckerman. Come hang with us next week. 